John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, I want to talk to you this morning on the Word. The Word that became flesh. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the rights to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Heavenly God, we are so thankful for this wonderful passage of Scripture. I confess today, Lord, that I am far from adequate to explain it or even understand it. I praise you for it. And I ask today that as we unpack it a little bit, that you'll give wisdom and guidance. Holy Spirit, fill me, I pray, and help me to say only those things I should and to, uh, to not say anything I ought not. And I pray that you'd fill us all, that we might have ears to hear today and that we might be... Uh, better uh, able to understand this wonderful, wonderful truth about our Savior, the Word uh, that became flesh. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought that for the next few weeks, as, as you know, we are now in the Advent season, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and uh, uh, we usually try to have some sort of a series of messages that, that follows along with that theme. And so I thought this, this year for these four weeks of Advent that we would look at various names of our Savior. And so the first thing I did is I went and I looked up all, all the names of the Savior. And I thought, well, I'll just I'll have a, a really cool and powerful introduction today, and I'll just read all those names to everybody. And then I discovered that there was, I don't know, somewhere around a hundred of them, and I decided that might get a little tedious this morning as I did that. So I, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I think what we'll do today is we're going to concentrate and just narrow the list uh, to the ones that have to do with the incarnation, the ones that have to do with Christmas, what we're celebrating this time of year. And so over the next four Sundays, Lord willing, you know, we could be in heaven. We might not have to do this. Uh, some of you are praying right now that we'll be in heaven before the sermon's out. I know. And, and I am too, actually. But if, if the Lord tarries his coming... For the next four Sundays, I want to look at these four names. Number one, the Word. We're going to talk about that this morning. Number two, next week, Lord willing, I'd like to talk about, I think, my favorite name for Jesus around Christmas time is Emmanuel, God with us. Number three, His name, Jesus. And number four, I want to talk about the word Lord. Not really a name, but a title. And uh, it has a particularly interesting meaning at Christmas time. And so, we'll talk about those four, Lord willing. Uh, today, let's start by looking at that first one. He is the Word. Consider with me our text. Our text is verse number 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's unpack that verse just for a minute. Let's think about some of the things it says. Let's think, first of all, about the Word. That's the name. That's the title that is used there. It is a word with a generic meaning, but here and elsewhere, John used it as a name for Jesus Christ, the Word. So I looked it up. I came across these definitions. It's from the Greek lagos, lagos, uh, which has been variously defined as being a statement. In other words, that which is said, a speech or the act of speaking, the gospel or the content of what is preached about Christ, a treatise or systematic treatment of a subject. That's what the word means. It's those things, the word. Another person defines it as being a word as embodying an idea, a statement or a speech. And yet a third definition is that it is a word or saying or an account which one gives by word of mouth. And any other place that you would look, you're going to find something similar. It kind of means what we think it would mean, doesn't it? I mean, if we were to, if we were to define the word, we would have come up with things like that. You see, I think the reason that this, this definition or this, this uh, name for Christ is given to us in the Bible is because God had something to say. He had a word for His creation. And He had a word for you and for me. And Jesus is that word. He is that statement from God. One man said human speech has the capacity to unveil thoughts, feelings, and emotions, to reveal the person behind the words. And Jesus is God expressing himself through Jesus. This title, The Word, teaches that Jesus is now and always has been the one through whom God expresses himself. I came across a passage in my devotions this past week, and I, I, uh, I was thinking about this, this sermon as I came across this. And, and I read this passage, and for some reason it, it didn't really register in my brain why it was speaking to me. But I, I remember putting it in my notes as I'm going through a, a week's sermon prep. I'm just gathering notes all over the place. And I put this in there, and I remember I put a little thing there. I said, I'm not real sure how this fits with today's sermon, but... For some reason, it's really speaking to me. So I put it in my notes. But then as I was working on it a little bit longer, I realized, what's the matter with you, Bill? This is, this, is, this is perhaps the clearest explanation of the concept that's found anywhere in the Bible. And it's Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1, where it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. That's the word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Let's think about that word for a minute. Flesh. In other words, He became physical. He became human. He did not, as some heresies have taught, merely look human. He was 
human. He did not merely appear like a man. He actually became one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word became flesh. One man said, Now, married to our nature... Henceforth, he is as personally conscious of all that is strictly human as of all that is properly divine. And our nature is in his person redeemed and quickened, ennobled and transfigured. The word became flesh. Now, before we move off of that thought, we have to make a a very important distinction. Because if you read Paul's writings right now, there's probably something jarring in your brain. Because when Paul uses the word flesh, he usually has the idea of sin included in it someplace. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 8, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is that the way John's using it when he talks about the word became flesh? Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can that possibly be what John is talking about when he says that the Word became flesh? And of course we know it cannot. You see, when Paul used that word, he referred to all the attributes of humanity, including and oftentimes emphasizing sin. But when John uses that word, flesh, he is referring to all the sinless attributes of humanity. Everything that makes us human apart from sin. That's Jesus. That's what he became. The word became flesh, human, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that little phrase, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Perhaps you'll recall your Old Testament. Perhaps you remember that in the Old Testament there was this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. You can go and study that on your own if you want to. You'll find that when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God instructed them to build a tabernacle. It was pretty much a structure, a tent of sorts, and it was central to their worship, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. And if you read the accounts of the tabernacle, you'll find that it was a place that was filled with the glory of God, oftentimes referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. Well, dwelt among us, as is used here in our text, is a phrase that literally means tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And just as the glory of God was seen in the Old Testament tabernacle, so too the glory of God is seen in the New Testament. The Word became flesh, tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Let's think about that phrase. Only begotten. And now I don't want to be tedious this morning, but I have to be technical about something here. We have to think about this a little bit because this is an interesting phrase. And depending on what Bible you're holding this morning, whether you're holding a King James or a New King James or an NIV or an NASB or whatever, 
you might not see only begotten. You might see one and only. You might see unique. There are different ways that that phrase has been translated. So let's talk about it a little bit and just make sure we understand. You see, when we see that word begotten, we think about it in its normal in its normal meaning, begotten or begot or beget in our Bibles. We usually think of a father and mother bringing a child into existence by the process of reproduction. Isn't that what that means? That's how we see it in the genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. That's what it means. But when it is used of Christ, it can't mean that. It can't. Because it can't be used in the sense of a beginning. It has to rather stress a relationship. You see, Jesus was always the Son. There was never a time when He began to be the Son. He is eternally the Son. The importance of this only begotten phrase in Scripture is that it indicates the uniqueness and the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son. He was and always has been the only Son. John's the only one who uses this, by the way. He uses it five times. He uses it here in our text. He also uses it in verse 18. If you jump down there in your Bible, you'll see it. Verse number 18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. John chapter 3 and verse number 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3 and verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And finally, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Here's how one person explained it. He said, The begetting is not an event of time, however remote, but it is a fact irrespective of time. Christ did not become, but necessarily and eternally is the Son. He a person possesses every attribute of pure Godhead, Godhood. This necessitates eternity, absolute being. And so in this respect, he is not after the Father. I know this is technical, but think about this. He could not be eternal and have a beginning. And yet he is eternal. He plainly said in John uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse number 58, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And so... When John describes him as the only begotten son, he's referring not to his beginning. There is no such thing. He's referring to the uniqueness of the relationship that existed and exists and has existed for all of eternity between the Father and the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so I can imagine that you're all just sitting there right now and you're saying, well, so what? Does this matter to me? This is all very interesting. It's theological truth. It's very fascinating. But does it really matter? Does it, does it matter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Does it have any meaning to me in Christmas 2014? And I think it does. I think it does. In the few minutes that remain, let me just suggest four reasons I think it matters. Four reasons why I think the incarnation, the fact that the Word became flesh, is important to you and to me. Number one, he became flesh so that we might have one who understands. So that we might have one 
who understands. And we're going to talk about this topic a little bit more when we talk next week, Lord willing, about Emmanuel, God with us. But let me just make a couple of thoughts now. You see, I think this tells me that Jesus knows what you and I go through. He knows. He endured all of the difficulties that we go through as humans. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was fatigued, weary, sleepy, frustrated. He knew what it was to experience pain. He wept at the loss of his good friend Lazarus by his tomb. You see, Jesus knows what you and I go through. I watched my wife die just a couple of months ago. And I must say it was the most excruciating experience of my life, bar none. (laughs) But every time I think about it, my mind goes back there. I am reminded that God watched his son die. That Jesus, Jesus experienced and wept the loss of a loved one by Lazarus' tomb. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows what we go through. He knows. There is simply nothing that we can go through in our human experience that he does not understand, that he does not know about, for he was fully human. When the word became flesh, he did so that we might have one who understands. I, I, I quoted from one fellow a minute ago, and I'm, I'm going to quote from him again because he, he, he's, this, this is such a good thought. He said, now, married to our nature, henceforth he is as personally conscious of all that is strictly human as of all that is properly divine. He became flesh so that we might have one who understands. He knows. He knows. Number two, he became flesh so that we might have an example of a life that pleases the Father. So we might have an example of a life that pleases the Father. How how should we live so as to please the Father? How should we live? David pondered that question. In Psalm chapter 15, he said, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? What does a life that pleases God look like? Wouldn't it be easier for us to hit the mark if we had some kind of a pattern? If we had some kind of an example? Well, we do. He became flesh so that we might have an example of a life that pleases the Father. Jesus is that example. He is that pattern. He shows us. Two centuries ago, a fellow by the name of Charles Monroe Sheldon wrote a book. It is a religious fiction novel. It's called In His Steps. Anybody ever read that book, In His Steps? It was actually written in 1896. That book has sold more than 30 million copies, and it ranks as one of the best-selling books of all time. The full title of the book is In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And the premise is seen in that title. What would happen to a person or to a people? Who, before they took any action in life, they asked that question, what would Jesus do? And, of course, that that concept has been expanded greatly in our day, has it not? That was two centuries ago, and yet now you can go into Bible bookstores or in places, uh, gift shops and things, and find all kinds of things based around that thought. What would Jesus do? WWJD, there are trinkets and bracelets and, and bumper stickers and everything in the world. Well, you know, frankly, I think you can... Get carried away with that kind of thinking. I've read his book. Did you like his book, brother? You did? We'll have to talk later. (laughs) Actually, I liked his book too, but I I just thought he got a little bit carried away and stretched that issue a little bit. We cannot apply that question to every single thing in life, but I do think that Jesus is our example, and he is the pattern that we ought to follow. And in his incarnation, in the fact that the Word became flesh, we have that example. 
of the one that we can see who pleased the Father. Number three, he became flesh so that we might know the value God places on human life. So that we might know the value God places on human life. Life is way too cheap in our world. Would you agree with that? You wouldn't? Life is way too cheap in our world. I know it's nothing new. Rome was notorious for the way they didn't value life. All you need to do is read the stories of the Colosseum. When we visited Rome some years ago, we stood there in that Colosseum, and I thought about all the blood that had been shed in that place and how they just they used it as entertainment. Life was cheap. There are many examples in our news story today. Ferguson is a pretty good stinking example, if you ask me, of how cheap life has become. How quick people are to be uh, resorting to violence because life is cheap. The epidemic of abortion is an example. The prevalence of war all over the globe is an example. The absolute wickedness of radical Islam right now and how they are just indiscriminately killing Everybody they come in contact with. It's an example. Life is cheap. Mankind doesn't value life. And it has always been so. Since Cain bashed his brother's head and became the first murderer, life has been cheap with mankind. But life is not cheap to God. It's precious. And Jesus' incarnation shows just how precious. Again, let me, let me remind you of that quote again. He said, Our nature is in His person redeemed, and quickened, and ennobled, and transfigured. I love that word, ennobled. Jesus became flesh. The Word became flesh so that we might know the value God places on human life. Finally, number four. He became flesh, making it possible for Him to die. He became flesh making it possible for him to die. Let's review for a minute. He became flesh so that we might have one who understands. He became flesh so that we might have an example of a life that pleases the Father. He became flesh so that we might know the value God places on eternal uh, on human life. And all those reasons are good. And all those reasons are important. But none of them describe the real reason that he came. His real purpose. He came to die. He came to die for you and for me. And again, we're going to talk about that more when we talk about that name, Jesus. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because in that name, we see that true purpose. The reason he came uh, was to die. He even said it. He said in John chapter 12 and verse 32, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. It was his purpose. It was his mission. It was his entire reason for coming. He came to die for you and for me. And so he became flesh, making it possible for him to die. Jesus became one of us, dwelt among us, that he might die for us. I read recently about Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell emerged from the metro, the story says, and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A young white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. And placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money and began to play. For the next 45 minutes in the D.C. Metro on January 12, 2007, Joshua Bell played Mozart and Schubert 
as over 1,000 people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. If they had paid attention, they might have recognized the young man, for the world-renowned violinist he is. They also might have noted the violin he played, a rare Stradivarius worth over $3 million. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall, with ordinary seats going for $100. In the subway, Bell garnered about 32 bucks from the 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. And, you know, as I read that story, from what I can read there, I don't see any indication anywhere that anybody ever who heard him play on that day recognized who he was or had even the slightest idea. You know, when Jesus came into the world on that first Christmas, very few people recognized who he was. And I can't help but wonder... As we go about this busy Christmas season, uh, will our thoughts be on the trivialities that so much consumes us this time of year, that colors the Christmas celebrations this time of year, or will they drift more towards the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father? I pray, and I hope we all pray, that our, our Christmas thoughts will never be far this year from Jesus, the Word, who became one of us, who dwelt among us, that He might die for us. Let's keep that central.